Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, February 12th. COVID-19 has exposed rampant inequality in the world and also in the very heart of the fashion industry, the people who make our clothes. From Bangladesh to Xinjiang, from Los Angeles to Leicester, garment workers have borne the brunt of this crisis, losing their jobs and livelihoods, or forced to work in unsafe conditions amid the pandemic. This is Sonia. She's 18 years old. She's just one of millions of factory workers that have been affected by the collapse of the global fashion and clothing industry caused by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm in a lot of difficulties after I lost my job. I don't have money to pay for my rent and food. My husband is the only breadwinner. Throughout the course of the pandemic, we've heard a lot of talk about essential workers like medical staff and grocery employees. But you may not be hearing as much about garment workers. Aside from working tirelessly to make the clothes on our backs, they're also the ones making those face masks that are so essential to our health. California is home to the highest concentration of garment industry workers in the country. But most garment workers don't even make minimum wage. This week, things heated up further when the BBC was banned from broadcasting in China, following its reports on the country's autonomous region of Xinjiang, 
where it says more than one million people are working in forced labor camps, something the Chinese government has strongly denied. Hundreds of thousands of people from ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur community, are being forced by the Chinese authorities to pick cotton in the far western region of Xinjiang. That's according to information seen by the BBC. The evidence suggests that China's cotton crop, which uh, makes up a fifth of the world's total supply, could be far more dependent on forced labor than was previously thought. Taking action to address these systemic issues will require regulatory change, political pressure, and empowered consumers who have the information they need to make informed purchasing decisions. Today on the BOF podcast, our retail columnist, Doug Stevens examines the issues of systemic inequality and racism in fashion supply chain and the imperative for the industry to heed consumer calls for fashion to take responsibility for the people it impacts. First, Doug explores how workers' rights are wound together with the wider goal of creating a more sustainable fashion industry. The term sustainability is often conjoined intellectually with the notion of environmental impact or preservation. But what it really refers to is the health of a system, any system, natural or otherwise, that must, in order to function effectively, provide sustenance for all stakeholders. When one organism in the system benefits disproportionately at the expense of others, the system fails. The fashion retail ecosystem is no different. It's a system that has prospered for centuries purely by harvesting value from one place and one group of people and then transferring that value to another place and another group of people, thus throwing the system out of equilibrium. It's this destructive imbalance that voices like that of Calcadan Legesa are not only speaking out against, but also working to fix. I am a Ethiopian migrant to the UK. I was born in Addis Ababa. My family moved to the UK in 1997, just at the kind of height of Tony Blair. And we settled in the southeast. And I kind of always knew that I wanted to be working in development. It was a lesson taught by my parents who had experienced very extreme poverty and wanted their children to kind of play a role in alleviating it as far as possible. Legesa is the co-founder of Sancho's, a sustainable, fair trade fashion retailer with stores in the UK. But the journey to this point in her career began thousands of miles away. That slowly led to me working for NGOs in Ethiopia, where my main focus of my work was to write income generating projects for impoverished people, particularly women, particularly widowed mothers. In doing so, I kind of discovered that the challenges of forcing entrepreneurship amongst groups can be alleviated if you just simply work with them. And I discovered the fashion industry of Ethiopia, which is something that I think gets too little recognition on the world stage. There is an amazing history of weaving and art and textiles and just beautiful, beautiful garments. And I was introduced to it all whilst working there. And also to this idea that fashion really belongs to the makers, the craftsmen and women of garments. And if we really honour them in both the communication of fashion and in the sale of fashion, 
that can be an incredible means for them to earn incomes that will alleviate them from poverty. And that's something that's driven my career. I came back to the UK, I finished my studies, I set up a shop specialising in sustainable fashion. Um, and I've just recently returned to my studies to think about what the future of sustainable fashion can actually look like and to continue encouraging people to really understand that the people who make their clothes, you know, deserve the same quality of life that we expect for ourselves. While researching Legessa's background, I came across a bold and unvarnished opinion piece she wrote for The Guardian titled, Racism is at the Heart of Fast Fashion. It's Time for Change. It was a straight-to-the-point piece laying out the many ways across both the supply and value chains in which racism and inequality are stitched directly into the garments we wear. Legessa highlights a notion that what is now termed globalism is just an ongoing pattern of a systemically linear view of commerce that serves one set of people at the expense of another set of people. I think that businesses that have specialized in what is a linear economic model, so, you know, extraction to produce, you know, items or garments that ultimately have obsolescence and then no plan for their end life cycle, I think they will inevitably struggle and you know each member of that business that has a different stake in that business I think I think everyone's very conscious of what they have to lose I think the solutions lie in new innovation and in the ability of consumers to kind of really critically and rigorously assess what businesses are doing and choose between the businesses that are able to most thoroughly manage both their product life cycle and the needs of all their stakeholders. One of the simplest and most direct expressions of such accountability, Legessa says, is the provision of a living wage. And so, you know, a simple form of accountability is obviously wage payments and how they choose to transfer wealth across their businesses. So the gap is, you know, millions of people on poverty wages. It's fast. It's it's the millions of garment workers who, you know, because of COVID-19 have been left without work and are currently on a bag of rice a week. It, we're not close to paying garment workers living wages in the slightest. What I've discovered through the conversations in this series is that the topic of sustainability in fashion or retail specifically is a little like Russian nesting dolls. On the outside, you have the problem of global environmental decay. But lift the first doll off, however, and you discover the underlying condition of rampant economic inequality. Remove the inequality doll and you find the even more pernicious racism doll. Together, they form an organized system of resource extraction without a return of reciprocal value. The problem being, if we can't resolve the racism at the core, we can't fight economic inequality. And without income equality, we can't ever solve environmental decay. But while we think of abject poverty as something that lives in other places, places out of the view of most Westerners, it resides on our doorstep too. In the U.S., the federal minimum wage stands at $7.25 per hour. Had minimum wage only kept up with inflation, it would be $11.62 or 60% higher than it is today. Therefore, if we're honest, 
Even the $15 minimum wage that many have espoused, lobbied, and fought for should really be closer to 25 The question is, have we created a system where, because of systemic wage suppression, both at home and abroad, a significant and growing portion of Western society lacks the means to consider anything beyond price in their buying decisions? In other words, have we created a system where unsustainable goods made by workers who are paid very low wages are then sold to consumers without the economic means to choose otherwise? I think that this growth in income inequality in the West has opened room for more people to realise how unjust poverty is and how somebody can work, you know, their whole days, their whole lives and still not progress further. And, and how unfair and how unjust that is, especially in the context where we're seeing, you know, billionaires' wealth grow to these astronomical levels. And I think that that understanding will fuel a greater sense of solidarity with garment workers around the world. There's an old adage that you can tell a lot about a person you're having lunch with by the way they treat the waitstaff. In retail, the same truism is beginning to apply, except in this case, it's shareholders that can learn a lot about a brand by how they treat their workers. It's information that investors are increasingly demanding full transparency on. In fact, in 2019, investors representing just short of $1.7 trillion in managed funds signed a formal letter requesting companies increase their transparency on workplace equity data. Data, they say, has a material impact on shareholder value and returns. By July of 2020, the letter included 125 signatories representing large institutional investment firms. And the same stories were repeated in LA, in California, where, you know, firms that were using labor, underpaid labor in the garment district in California were called out for not only putting, um, not only paying less, but putting their garment workers at, you know, extreme rates of risk against COVID. And that resulted in their share price falling. So I think that, I think that this increased solidarity will support garment workers around the world. As a fashion entrepreneur and a woman of colour, I was interested to know if Legessa sees COVID-19 and the awakening around race and inequality as sort of a true societal tipping point. Have we reached the point where the issues that Calcadan, through her business, is fighting for, namely sustainable, fair trade products produced with fair wages, will be adopted as a battle cry by brands larger than hers. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I'm not so naive to to think that such forward progression is possible consistently and without a lot of effort. I think, I think what has changed is people have realised that we have been centering whiteness in our understanding of everything. And there is serious consequences of that um, socially, environmentally, economically. And there's a lot of injustice in that as well. I think I think also to give you know credit where it's due, I think the biggest change is being driven by black people and people of colour who are finally realizing how much they are, you know, how much value they give to the world, how you know, rich and deep and powerful their culture is. And I think because of that, the change doesn't need to stay 
it's not in the hands of just a few people. It's not just in the hands of, you know, people who traditionally held power. There's enough people at the table now, I think, for, for change to be long-lasting. And while brands like Sancho's may be the tip of the spear in driving such change, the true revolution simply cannot happen unless the largest brands in the world become its champions. And not merely in far-off communities around the world, but also in their own backyards. $16 trillion, that's the economic loss suffered over 20 years due to racism in America, according to a new study by the big bank Citigroup. The study offers $16 trillion in lost economic value in the United States alone, purely by restricting opportunities in education, housing, and business lending for black Americans. The question is, how do we break from a broken system? How can organizations reject once and for all the colonialist mindset and linear thinking that has proven so destructive, both at home and abroad? And how can the fashion retail industry in particular forge a new path to a fair and fruitful future for all? These are the questions that have become the stock and trade of Rob Hoppenheim and his team at Kindustry a Canadian consultancy that helps to reorient companies and put them on a path to social and environmentally responsible business models and brand strategies, and do so for an intriguing variety of clients, including organizations as diverse as luxury brands, the United Nations, and the Caribbean region. It seems like it's somehow quite diverse, but, but the thread that runs through it is that all these different types of organizations, companies, or even countries help to inform each other. Because today, what we're finding is that you can't be, and we'll talk about this today as far as the fashion industry is concerned, but you can't really be sort of completely in a bubble when it comes to your thinking about your business. You really need to take inputs from the the trends that are happening globally, culturally, geopolitically, in terms of public health and other elements. And I think that whether we're working with, for example, luxury brands or beauty brands or fashion brands, or with the UN presently on visioning and other types of initiatives or countries like you've mentioned, all these sort of elements come together and inform each other so that we're able to deliver the most progressive direction possible for our clients. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh 
every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Clients that, according to Hoppenheim, often initially see issues like equality through the wrong lens entirely. You know, we talk about big trends today like diversity. That And it's not really a trend. It's just sort of a, an important monolithic concept and principle that I think everyone needs to adopt quickly. But people are looking at it even probably in the, in the wrong way or they're missing the plot in the sense that they're thinking about it as something we need to do because it's fair, which is, of course, the truth. But, but underlying that also is the fact that diversity brings different opinions and perspectives uh, and points of view. And through that dialectic, these brands are able to foresee some of the uh, disruptive elements that are going to happen in the future. So it's really about being much more open. And I think that has to do with uh, a lot to do with the people that are brought on board, but also the culture of the organization and how divergent opinions and competing opinions are incorporated and assimilated into decision making. It makes sense. I mean, how can any organization even presume to serve a global market that it doesn't resemble or relate to? How can organizations tackle increasingly diverse socioeconomic disruptions and societal shifts if they're built on a structure of racial and cultural homogeneity? What we're seeing is, all, is also, you know, consumer sentiment has changed dramatically, particularly as next generations are moving up and becoming more and more powerful consumers. And so we're seeing these consumers, these archetypes of, let's say, purpose-driven consumers starting to drive a lot of, a lot of the business around the world. And they're, they're thinking of things like experience over products, and they're thinking of elements like contribution over consumption and you know, provenance over commodity, inspiration over acquisition. Like there's a, just a movement and a shift psychologically. And I think, again, brands and retailers need to kind of understand that shift and position themselves for it. And I think people are willing to spend a disproportionate amount of money on these elements because they, they form part of the brand and that brand forms part of that individual's identity. And so they're really buying into this brand. So if you're not really thinking more holistically about your contribution to the world in addition to what you're taking from it, I think you'll have a harder time down the road becoming successful. 
On the one hand, we have the pressing issue of brands having to adapt to societal change. The more intriguing question is, can brands change society? Historically, we as societies have trusted government to institute major social or economic change, trust that is rapidly eroding. A new survey from the Pew Research Center finds the nation increasingly distrustful of the federal government. The findings released today show that about one quarter of Americans trust government to do the right thing, always or most of the time. A whopping 73% do not. And those surveys... Question is, can brands step in to fill the void? I, I think definitely. I mean, I, I, we've been talking about brands sort of taking over the mantle for this this concept for, for some time. And I think that people have lost faith in institutions and organizations for a number of reasons. And I think the present political situation globally is one where people feel that things are somewhat ineffective, overtly and overly political, not necessarily moving in tune with the interests of the people, etc. And the fact that they're so removed from having some any sort of influence over how things can actually change other than a vote every number of years. I think the advantage that brands have today is that they have a much more intimate, direct dialogue with consumers, and they're able to not only receive inspiration and direction from consumers on a daily basis, but react to it also on a daily basis or in real time. And, and, and conversely, they're able to push out uh, strong messaging and inspiration and value sets and direction to the world through social media and other fairly inexpensive means. So I think that there is definitely an opportunity for brands to assume that leadership role. They're well positioned for it. And there are certain brands that have taken it upon themselves to make strong statements about what they believe in and what they stand for. And I think those are going to end up being the winners ultimately. I think the brands that stand on the sidelines and trying to appease everybody but not by not doing anything become complicit in what people feel is wrong with society and the world in general. If I'm a brand marketer and I'm listening to this right now, I might be thinking this all sounds well and good, but what's my ROI? And I suppose beyond moral obligation, it's a fair question. We measure payoff on everything else from capital to innovation. So what's the payoff for the fair and equitable treatment of the people in your supply or value chains? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's hard to get to sort of an algorithm or some sort of equation. I think conceptually, the payoff is they avoid extinction, in my mind. So that's a pretty good payoff to begin with. I think that there are also the brands that are, are able to sort of achieve what we would call the holy grail, which today is authenticity. Everyone wants to be that brand, and no one really knows how to get there. And I think the ones that really put in the work and make the investment over a period of time develop an authentic voice and those are the voices that are being listened to and those are the voices that are, are creating value for those organizations and their their constituencies during difficult times so if you have a, a brand that's done nothing for over 10 years to move the needle as far as a progressive world is concerned and then all of a sudden comes out with a black lives matter statement it falls on deaf ears or even worse seems inauthentic and i think today consumers uh, stakeholders are just seeing through all of it and they're looking for brands that have a track record and have invested in a body of work and i think that's what's key i think what, what we're seeing today is a lot of reaction 
to what's going on because there's no choice but to react because the situations, both from a public health, economic and, and cultural point of view, are so acute. But as we kind of move out of this a little bit before the next revolution, which we believe is going to happen pretty soon in any case, you know, brands need to really rethink how they're going to institutionalize a mindset that positions them for, you know, progressive, progressive business operations and communications for the long term. And I think that's what people are looking for right now. And that's how they're going to vote with their dollars. Oppenheim is quick to point out, however, that a commitment to social change does not imply that organizations simply chase causes like passing cars. I think it's about not so much focusing on a cause or causes specifically, but really getting to the essence of what the, the brand is all about. And I think there's there's different ways of doing it. One way that we use it, I think, is is quite effective is by sort of creating what we would call human-centric organizations. So there's not just brand related, it's really thinking about how do you transform an organization. We say transform, it scares everybody because they have to operate businesses, particularly in retail. But this can be done in parallel to the operating business. But really a human-centric organization is an organization that puts people uh, at the center of decisions and growth and social, economic, and environmental impact. And, And people have to understand that they're in it for something bigger than going to work each day, collecting a paycheck, selling X, Y, or Z. And I think that's really important to get down to that raison d'etre of that brand and and be able to distill it in an intuitive way and then express it in a way that engages people. I think the second pillar is culture. And this is something that brands need to start really thinking about and investing in. It's not about parties and it's not about vacations and it's not about offsites. It's really about culture. So purpose, culture, and community. Community is the tribe. It's the lifeblood of the organization. And really also it's about defining community. Community traditionally has been thought of as something which has been almost internal. It's our employees or it's just our, or it's our customers on the external, from an external point of view. But it's really bigger than that. Every organization and brand is a community of communities. And it's really about understanding all of those communities and the intersection between those communities and how those communities are grown and nurtured over time. I wondered, going back to the Russian doll analogy, how many brands that Hoppenheim works with are actually getting to the final doll? How many are ready to tackle racism and inequality? Well, it comes up quite frequently when we're working with organizations like the UN or countries like Dominica or the, or the Caribbean or other foundations, obviously. When it comes to a, a more traditional brand, it doesn't come up enough. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting question and really interesting perspective. It really does boil down to inequality at the end, like you said. And I think that there's lots of ways of organizations and brands to look at this. You know, people think of inequality as being the ability for certain minorities to have opportunities to, to move up the food chain, so to speak. That's definitely one a key area. But then you look at other things which seem sort of less obvious, and you have to understand how that impacts people's perception of the values of these organizations. The irony here is that for many retailers and brands, what is perhaps the most crucial aspect of social responsibility, that being a fundamental commitment to human equality, is the one thing that few are tackling head on. How, I wondered, can we turn the corner if we can't even get these conversations to permeate global boardrooms? It's definitely a concern. I mean, I think that we have to unpack that idea along a a a timeline or a continuum. I think if you try and solve for all of this immediately, it becomes extremely complicated. Most of the brands that we speak to today are working through existential issues and cost cutting is sort of number one. And I think that, you know, a lot of the times that we're approaching or or working with them, we have to be empathetic about that as well, because the, the brand needs to survive. And I think that it's incumbent upon people who are trying to affect change to work 
in a way that doesn't disrupt that immediate need. Uh, I think that the the change and the projection into something forward-looking and something much more progressive can happen in parallel to that without disrupting that immediately. But I think over the long term, I'm hoping for two things. One thing is that, you know, brands and organizations and their leaders have learned something from this. And if half of them have or a quarter of them have, then fantastic. It's going to lead to a better planet. And I also am hopeful that the money is going to go into that space. So brands and organizations that don't seem to have learned much from this are going to follow the money into a more compassionate and more culturally relevant place. And I think that that's, that's an opportunity as well. I mean, I think at the end of the day, businesses are businesses and they're not, they're not foundations and they're not charities. They're there to make a profit. Now, can profit and the greater good exist together? Yes. Can they exist synergistically? Absolutely. And I think that the more that uh, generations are demanding more from their organizations, the more those organizations are going to need to move into that space. So why not invest in it now? You want to come out of this, and we're going to come out of this period, is in some cases stronger, in some cases, in some cases depleted, but, the, but I think the opportunity is now, where is, where is, what's the next horizon of, of retail? What's the next horizon of brand? And how are brands and organizations positioning themselves now to achieve that once we come out of this, this time? In the few remaining moments we had left together, I was interested to learn one more thing. Was Hoppenheim hopeful or concerned about the future? I'm actually, I'm hopeful, to be completely honest with you. I think this is a defining moment. I don't think everyone's going to evolve with it in the way that they are dealing with it today, which is acute and where they're the information and the reality is raw, which is always always the best time to, to speak to someone about fundamental change. But I do think there is an opportunity going forward, uh, again, as brands and organizations see it in their interest. Climate change, I think people are going to start really understanding the implications of it to their supply chains, to all sorts of other issues, uh, and how it really affects their business. You know, the, the fashion retail industry, instead of being a liability, can turn itself into a leader and can turn itself into a beacon. And that comes through unity. I think it's not it's not about one brand holding the torch and marching forward and a few following. It's it's really rethinking, you know, collectively what we're going to do for the planet and which in effect helps us all all of us together move forward. Otherwise, in a in a fragmented way where it is, you know, predator versus predator, I think everyone's at risk. And so I think a movement towards some sort of unifying construct that sets out values and principles and acts as a beacon for other industries to jump on board and shows that the world and consumers are moving with it and you can be profitable uh, and viable, I think is, is, is a really interesting um, potential. And I think that's something that requires leadership from a large number of people. And I think it's, it's something that is, I'm quite hopeful about. If we've learned anything from COVID-19, it's that viruses have an uncanny ability to home in on those with pre-existing conditions. Today, we're trying to cure societal illness on a number of fronts, overconsumption, linear depletion of global resources, and economic inequality. But what becomes clear very quickly is that until we resolve the pre-existing condition we've suffered from for centuries, racism we can never tackle these other existential threats. For brands, it's fast becoming an existential imperative. A 2017 study by McKinsey & Company found that brands with strong performance around gender, ethnic, 
and cultural diversity enjoyed a 33% likelihood of outperformance on revenue and profitability. One can safely assume that the events around racial inequality thus far in 2020 will only serve to heighten that advantage. And with shareholders increasingly viewing diversity, equity, and sustainability as key investment criteria, capital will chase those companies that hold them as core values and look past those that don't. Racism, inequality, and discrimination of any kind isn't just bad. It's bad for business. The good news is that voices like those of Kalkadon Legessa and Rob Hoppenheim are leading a growing chorus of global change agents, all working toward a future where the rights of companies to profit happily and synergistically coexist with the rights of every single worker on Earth, regardless of where they live or the color of their skin, to prosper economically, to live healthily, and breathe freely as equals. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.